Welcome back to Mises Weekends. I'm your host, Jeff Deist. And this weekend, we are talking about last Monday's mini crash in the equity markets. Bloomberg is reporting that the world's 400 richest people, aka the Forbes 400, lost about $124 billion in wealth, at least on paper, Monday alone. So here to talk about what we should make of all this and whether deflationary crashes are actually the cure rather than the problem is our own Dr. Joe Salerno. So if you're interested in markets, stay tuned for a great interview. Dr. Joe Salerno, welcome back to Mises Weekends. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. I'm happy to be here. To begin, Joe, I'd like your thoughts on last Monday's stock market crash. I see Bloomberg is reporting that the Forbes 400 wealthiest families lost about $124 billion, at least in equity value, on Monday alone. Should we view this as a loss in real wealth, or was this all just a paper loss? It was, it was paper wealth. It, it's false wealth that has resulted from the uh, zero interest rate policies of the Fed. Uh, when you push interest rates down that low, what happens is that you know future incomes are capitalized at a much higher value. So households look at their balance sheets and they see their 401ks going up and, and they see the value of their, their homes going up and so on. And uh, that gives them a full sense of security and depresses savings rates, as we saw in the early part of the 2000s. Same thing is happening today. Of course, the losses feel very real to the average investor. They endure a lot of psychic pain. And at least on paper, they now have less money than they had before last Monday. Absolutely. Not only did they think they had more than they, they do, but they also um, acted on, on that premise and they didn't save enough or, or they reduced their saving rates, which means that they're making themselves poor in the future. Again, thinking that, that they had all of this wealth already stored up. It's interesting, Joe, that the financial press correctly identifies Monday's mini crash as a deflationary event of sorts, but they never want to talk about the inflationary monetary policy that led up to the crash itself, that led equity prices to be overheated. In other words, for a bubble to burst, there has to be something that inflated it in the first place. Yeah, well, the, the problem is twofold. One, um, mainstream economists have convinced journalists and so on that when the, the, that inflation is uh, a, a simultaneous increase in all prices in some sense, that it all happens at once. But as Austrians, we know that's not true, that it happens step by step, that it affects first one sector, then the next sector, first housing, and then maybe equities and so on, and eventually uh, affects uh, prices of, of, of everyday goods that we purchase. Um, and, and number two, uh, there's a problem because Milton, Milton Friedman, for example, has sort of banished, um, he has a lot of influence, and, and he's banished the, the whole idea of asset inflation from a vocabulary. Uh, that's starting to come back now. But when people talk about inflation or deflation, they're only referring to the prices of consumer goods or, or, or wholesale or producer goods. They never look at, at, at asset markets anymore. And that's because of these theories that were developed by Keynes and then later by Friedman. Joe, deflation is routinely characterized as a monster to be slayed, something that monetary and fiscal policy has to fight against. But if deflation is defined as falling prices as a result of greater productivity, isn't it benevolent? I mean, why is it so hard for people to understand deflation as a benevolent phenomenon? Because they've been convinced that prosperity means rising prices. 
and that um, the, the way the Fed operates during periods of growing real um, output, we've also had increasing prices because the Fed increases the money supply at the same time. So people have looked on that phenomenon as sort of all part of the same thing. That is, prosperity means increases the amount in my nominal income, my, my, the price of what I sell going up. And so they don't understand that prosperity can also be distributed throughout the economy by falling prices and your income, your nominal income, your salary and so on, staying the same, but being able to purchase more real goods and services. That's the natural way that an economy grows, where you have a gold standard or some other market commodity as money. So, Joe, since the great crash of 2008, the monetary base, basically the Fed's balance sheet, has more than quadrupled. In the same period, the Dow has right. roughly tripled. So doesn't this suggest that there's potentially a much greater than 10% downside out there for equity markets? Yeah. Uh, one, one reason why they should be worried is, is because uh, you know, eventually there's going to be banks as, let's assume that they, they, they buy a speculative story in the sense that they believe the economy really is improving and you, you begin to get more lending and so on. What's going to happen is that the money supply, not, not the base money, but the money supply, the money deposits and currency in the hands of everyday people is going to increase. And we're going to have a burst of inflation in consumer goods prices. And so uh, the Fed may react to that by beginning to sell off part of its balance sheet. That is to, to get rid of the mortgage backed securities and so on. And at that point, you know, who knows what's going to happen? to um, the housing sector. Joe, do you think Monday's crash puts to rest any possibility that the Fed will raise interest rates in the fall? You know, I saw something very interesting. Um, well, you know, William Dudley, the president of New York Fed yesterday, said that um, it does put it in doubt that they'll raise interest rates or it makes the case less strong for raising interest rates. But uh, the um, a guy named Dalio, uh, who is uh, the head of a hedge fund, billionaire uh, mentioned that he sees maybe them raising uh, uh, interest rates very, very, you know, 25 or 50 basis points, but then going ahead after that and using that as a cover to continue QE, that is to bring in another round of quantitative easing in which they go crazy and, and, and buy, uh, begin buying up assets and expanding the balance sheet again. So um, he sees them you know, carrying through on what they said but in a way that really is, is neutralized by what they do after that, that is you know, implementing another round of, of quantitative easing. I find that very plausible. Joe, people watch what the Fed does and what it says because they want to get some predictive value out of it, right? What they want to do is time markets, but there's so many billions of inputs involved in any particular stock market and so many billions of individual actors across the world. You know, How should we view this idea of market timing and the tremendous knowledge problem that goes into any attempt to succeed at market timing. Okay, the Austrians stress that that um, the unit of analysis in economics is, is the human being and the human human decision. And we know that human decisions and uh, actions depend on expectations about the future. And those expectations are very volatile, or they can be very volatile, especially in a period of monetary disequilibrium that we have today. So. What, what's, what, what happens is that, yes, there's going to be certain movements or certain trends, but we don't, and, and as Austrians, we know that a bubble can't last forever, but there are a lot of stories out there that drive the bubble, what uh, Brendan Brown calls speculative stories. And one of those stories came to an end today, uh, came to an end this week, of course, that, that the Chinese economy was, was so strong. 
Uh, and, and and recently, we know the, the story about commodities continually going up and, and the U.S. having a miracle in, in uh, shale oil and gas. That came to an end, too, as commodity prices have tested new lows. Uh, bottom line is that you cannot time because you cannot predict the, uh, the changes in, in expectations that, that people go through during a period of, of monetary disequilibrium. Well, you bring up China. Can we put to bed once and for all this myth that when a country devalues its currency, it can somehow create generalized economic prosperity by doing so? Yes. In fact, what, what's happened there, though, is, you know, people are blaming China in some sense for, for uh, taking a shot in the currency war. But really what happened was that its currency was losing value. They were actually holding the currency up. They were buying up their own currency, which is the opposite of what they were doing, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the past when they bought up U.S. dollars to keep the value of the dollar higher. So all they did was they un, they unhinged it from from the peg. I mean, a peg is a price control, and they allowed it to drop two percent. Uh, I, I whereas, for example, um, if you look at um, uh, the euro, the euro for a while dropped by about ten to twenty percent against the U.S. dollar, and other currencies have dropped against the U.S. dollar, and no one has um, has really complained about about that as as being a part of the currency war. So 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 China was was just. That's not the problem with China. The real problem with China is that from 1909, from uh, 2009 uh, until this year, it's been increasing the money supply on a yearly basis by 15 to 30 percent. And that has caused a tremendous bubble in, in the stock exchange and real estate sector and so on. And just in the last year, they've decreased the rate of growth in the money supply to 10 percent. So as Hayek's pointed out, when an economy becomes adjusted, to, to a very high rate of inflation, even if you cut back that rate of inflation or rate of monetary growth to something that's lower, like 10%, which is very high, um, you begin to get the, the, the um, first, be the beginnings of uh, what we might call a recession, okay, and, um, and, fi and financial disarray. And that's what you see in China. But shouldn't we cheer the fact that China is no longer engaged in price fixing by pegging its currency to the dollar? Yeah, I mean, in fact, we we wanted them to stop keeping the value of the dollar up. We told them to stop price fixing a number of years ago. We put pressure on them. The IMF put pressure on them. And now that, that the tendency of their currency is to drop, suddenly everybody's up in arms about what, what China has done. Well, I, I applaud what they've done. I, I, you know, given that we have national fiat currencies, which are each controlled by their own nation's central banks, they're different commodities and they should um, fluctuate in value against one another. It tells the truth about their, their actual values. So when a country or a central bank purposely sets out to devalue its currency, isn't it just in effect shifting wealth from savers to exporters? Yes. And that's only in the short run, by the way. Um, as you devalue your currency, obviously you what, what you're doing is you're printing up more of your currency um, and putting into circulation to drive down the value of your currency. Now, if exchange rates change first, and they usually do, so the value of your currency goes down, you do give a boost to your exporters at the expense of your consumers at home who have to now pay higher prices because your currency is cheaper. But eventually, that's offset by the fact that prices rise in your country as a result of the greater amount of currency in circulation. So in order to keep boosting exports, you have to inject new money into the economy again and again to keep the to keep the, the uh, currency um depreciating. And, and so you get into a circle of, of inflation. Joe, one last question for you. 
At our event earlier this year in Stanford, Connecticut, both David Stockman and Jim Grant were talking about the importance of the federal funds rate. And Stockman calls it the single most important price in the entire economy. And for those unfamiliar, we're talking about the overnight rate at which commercial banks uh, borrow from each other for liquidity purposes. Can you talk about the systemic effects that flow throughout the entire economy when the Fed engineers or suppresses the overnight federal funds rate? Yeah, yes, because the interest rate is part of every price. Okay, our, our economy is a structure of prices that uh, incorporates um, time. There, there are time in all prices. If you have any sort of a capital good or a piece of land, the value of that land depends on how you value money over time. So when you distort the interest rate, you change the whole what we might call intertemporal structure of prices. So the interest rate really is a proxy for the this, this structure of prices, which is then distorted. And that's uh, what uh, James Grant's point was, and, and, and he was quite correct. What has to happen is that the Fed has to step back and allow interest rates to adjust to what we Austrians call their natural level, which will reflect the actual profits uh, or long-term profit being earned in uh, various production processes. Right now, the economy is over-financialized in the sense that it's, it's finance and interest rates that are driving the economy rather than the other way around. The real economy, entrepreneurial investments and so on, should be what drives the values of stocks, bonds, the height of interest rates and so on. Dr. Joe Salerno, I really appreciate your time today. And thanks for coming on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, you have a great weekend.